and it's unclear whether or not he was actually abducted by extraterrestrials. The details are very few, but he called the police, told them uh, you know, his story. And the police picked him up. This guy had blisters on his feet, indicating that he had walked for miles and miles during the night. Even though he had shoes on, his feet were just blistered to the extreme. So something happened to him. He did supposedly lose his car and walked for miles and miles for whatever reason. The police weren't able to find his car. Um, so a lot of media outlets that covered this story kind of gave it the uh, the ridicule treatment, treated it as a joke. Like, hey, dude, aliens took my car. But we don't have the details of this story, and I'm very intrigued by this story. I'd love to have more details. I would love to hear from the police whether or not this guy was intoxicated um, or had something else in his system. Um, just to know what, what his frame of mind was. And I, I have so many unanswered questions. I mean, the guy told police that he'd been taken by extraterrestrials before, and it's unclear in the wording done by uh, the local paper, the Times Reporter, whether or not they were referring to him telling the police that he had just been abducted or if he had ex abduction experiences in the past. So I think it's really fascinating, and, and the fact that this guy – clearly walked for miles and miles in the night uh, for whatever reason is indicated by the blisters on his feet. I, I don't know. I am really excited and, and, and intrigued by this story, Alejandro. Yeah, it is a very strange story. I mean, um, that they find, the, I, I think, you know, the facts are they find the guy walking. Uh, I think he didn't have shoes on, right? I think he said that. He did have shoes. Oh, he did. Um, but the guy's walking and that they don't find his car or anything. They don't know what the heck happened, so all they can go on is what he has to say about um, this whole thing, which, of course, is a pretty wild story, but uh, very interesting story. That's for sure, the, I think, the most interesting story from last week, no doubt about it. Excellent. Well, what is your pick for your favorite story from last week, Alejandro? In fact, I was going to say, that's one of the more interesting stories than we've had in a while. I, uh, just really weird. It is. It's really weird, and and again, it's one of the the stories, probably the best story um, that I can remember from from probably this year that leaves me with so many questions. Mm -hmm. you know, he talks about the he was instructed by subjects not of this world to drive to this field. I want to know if the these subjects were you know communicating telepathically or whether they were physically in the car with him. I, I don't know. I just have so many questions for this guy. Yeah, strange stuff. Yes. What's so, your story, Alejandro? My story. Last week, we had quite a few actual UFO video stories right. that we put up, something like five or something like that. Um, I think one of them was a hoax. People will have to go look and see for themselves. Uh, the others were mostly misidentifications, but I think the one I really had the most fun with that I liked and seemed to uh, create the biggest stir, at least uh, in its host country, was this UFO video quite a or quite a few were taken in Colombia. So this is a story I decided to cover and this started last Sunday night at nine PM. People saw a red light hanging uh motionless in the sky, so they started taking videos of it. Um this is in an area of Colombia called Valle de Cauca, which is interesting where we have states out here, some people places have provinces they call their provinces departments in Colombia, which is kind of weird. They're referred to as departments, and this is a Valle del Cauca department. 
Um, and then uh, the next night, Monday night, there were similar sightings again and more videos taken. So they're very high resolution, good videos. It looks like it was cloudy. So people t testified that this light was sitting there, it disappeared, and then reappeared in another position. However, you can definitely see in the videos uh, that cloud cover kind of obscures the light, but it's very bright. You can see it through some of the clouds. Um, so that could have, have played a role. Also, one of the towns where there were the most sightings in a town called Pradera, uh, the mayor, Adolfo Escobar, said that the army had launched some flares, and that was his explanation. However, uh, the witnesses didn't seem to agree with that explanation. So, so very uh, interesting sighting, and, and what's great, it comes with a lot of videos. Right, and as you mentioned, there were a lot of UFO videos in the news last week. So uh, Maureen Ellsbury and I will certainly be talking about some of those on Spacing Out that uh, will air on Friday. Perfecto. Si. Mi amigo. Si. All right, great. Any other comments for the week? No, sir. That is it for me. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get right into our interview with uh, Leslie Kane. This is interesting stuff. I am very happy to once again be speaking with Leslie Kane. Hello, Leslie. Hey, Alejandro. So good to be with you again. Yeah. How are you? I am doing well, thanks. Keeping busy. Yeah. Very busy, very, very busy, yes. Yeah, well, one of the things you're busy with, which I wanted to start off with, is uh, this conference in North Carolina that you're helping out with. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's only three weeks away now, and, you know, it's taken months and months and months to prepare for it and set it up and get all the logistics taken care of, which, which I'm happy to say has not been my responsibility. But uh, right. I've been a sort of a consultant for the organizer, Kent Center, who's a, a longtime MUFON investigator and has just put his life into creating this very unusual conference in which he wanted to have sort of the most official, scientific, serious speakers that he could pull together. And uh, he was willing to provide the resources to make it happen. So we're we're all very fortunate. Mm-hmm. One, it's great he went to you, and you know you can definitely see your your fingerprints all over this, and that uh, you uh, tackle things from a serious perspective, and so that's why this lineup of speakers is just uh, incredible. I think it is incredible. I think it's um, particularly incredible. This is the part I'm most excited about, mm -hmm. and we can we can cover some of the other speakers too. They're all great, right. but. What we've got here, which is really, it's an historic first. This has never happened before. We have the current active officials from both the the investigative official investigative agency in Chile and the official investigative agency in France. These are the two leading government agencies in the world that have had official offices for, for a long time that investigate unidentified aerial phenomena. And we have both of their representatives coming to this conference. They have never even met before. They've never spoken in the United States before. They've never been in the same venue before. So I feel like it's extremely important because in, as far as I'm concerned, what I think is most important is what governments are doing, what other governments are doing to deal with this topic. And that's how we're going to get through to the American government is by showing them what 
other governments are doing. So I'm just so, so excited that these two very outstanding people from these two countries are coming. And they're not, you know, they're not retired like so many of our great witnesses and great experts are. These are active government officials that are on the job right now investigating for their own governments UFOs and doing nothing else. And we're going to hear about why their governments take this topic seriously and how their government agencies work what they've learned, how they go about investigating cases, what some of their current cases are. And I think it's just going to be fascinating, and I'm very happy that this is something that we will then have to illustrate for our own country how successful agencies function. That's, That's so important to me. Well, that's what's great. You not only have these two officials, uh, who are currently working on UFO investigations for their respective co- countries, but you also have then two generals from two other countries who have been involved with major UFO cases that have been involved with investigating these cases. Um, and then you have Dr. Richard Haynes, who's worked with uh, the NASA, and uh, Colonel Halt, who has been involved with an uh, uh, U.S., although it happened in the U.K., it was a U.S. Uh, based, uh, important, one of the most important UFO cases. So you've got a great mix for official UFO investigations. Yeah, I think I agree. And the, the, the two generals that you mentioned, I feel, are also really important. They're both retired, but they were generals within their countries. One of them is General Wilfried de Brouwer from Belgium, who presided over the the uh, Belgian wave that took place in 89-90-91. He was the, a colonel at the time, and he was assigned by the Ministry of Defense in Belgium to oversee the Air Force investigation of the phenomenon because these uh, objects kept reappearing and they were invading sensitive airspace over the country of Belgium. And his job was to kind of mobilize people to try and find out what was going on. And he has a very, very great lecture with lots of illustrations and uh, knows the case inside out. And you get to hear it firsthand from him. And I think what's really important, too, were his efforts to to find out whether these objects could have been exotic technology or stealth technology from the United States or any other country. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear about what he learned when he went to the American officials about this. And, in fact, that's documented in in official government documents. So I think the Belgian wave is one of the strongest cases on record in terms of documentation for something that absolutely cannot be explained and that absolutely was not something from some country. It's just impossible. So, uh, anyway, I've heard him talk before, and he's absolutely phenomenal and, and just so serious and direct and meticulous. You know, these people do not exaggerate. They're not sensationalistic. Mm-hmm. And you get a clean story, and you don't need, you learn that you don't need the rest of it because the, the real truthful story is so powerful in itself that when you have it unembellished, it's better. Right. Just in, just in terms of its entertainment value, let alone the fact that it happens to be true. Right. And you can trust these people that they are going to give you the facts, they're very conservative in what they present. They're very, very careful. So um, I'm, I'm very excited that, that General de Brouwer is coming. And also we have 
uh, Parviz Jafari, the other general who's from Iran, who people may be familiar with, I'm sure they are, the 1976 Iranian case of the uh, pilots that were being de- dealing with this huge object that was shooting these projectiles toward his plane, and he has a whole story uh, around that, which people may be familiar with it, and he's He's never spoken at a conference, I don't think, right. for any length. I mean, he was at our press conference in 2007, the one I, I co-organized with James Fox, and he spoke for four minutes. Mm-hmm. But here we're giving him a block of time to where he can go into more detail and also do a lot of dialogue with the audience. I think the other great thing about this conference is going to be lots of time for the audience to interact with the speakers and ask a lot of questions, so that'll be an exciting part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's incredible with Jafari is that he, I don't think he ever has he spoken at a conference. So uh, this is an incredible first time and maybe last time opportunity. Right, he's he's not he's not getting any younger. So mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, he lives in Canada now. So uh, it makes oh it, really? It, yeah, he moved there a couple of years ago. It makes it easier for him to travel. Although he's right. having some trouble even getting a visa out of Canada. Wow. But we hope we hope that's going to be resolved. But yeah, it's it makes it easier for him to. Because I know for you and and Fox had a hard time, right, getting him uh, when you had him speak at the, your press conference. It was very hard and very expensive to get him a visa to leave Iran. Yeah, it took a lot of work. Um, so this is easier, definitely easier. That's great because I was wondering because our relations with Iran right now are are more stressed than they even were back then. So. I was right. wondering how difficult that was going to be, but uh, our relations with Canada are still pretty good. Yes, definitely, <laughs> yes. And uh, you mentioned Colonel Holt, too. I think uh, the interesting thing about Colonel Holt, of course, is that he's the highest-level American military official who has ever gone on the record about being directly involved with a case. Mm-hmm. And his case happens to be one of the most spectacular on the record, as you mentioned earlier. And he's not, he's going to bring some new information. He is constantly learning more about this case. So he's got some brand new information that actually, and he's got information showing that the, there was radar. And some people don't know this, that they're actually, years later, uh, he learned that there these, these objects did show up on radar, and he's going to talk about that, plus other new witnesses that have contacted him and so on. So that's going to be exciting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he also, uh, similar to, because I've seen De Brower speak, um, you know, I've spoken with Jose Lay, uh, and we'll get more into those because those are really interesting. But like you said, they're, they're no-nonsense, very serious, just like Halt, where he really lays it all down. I mean, um, it's incredible because you feel like you're in a briefing room for the military. You know, it's just serious right. business. No, no, there's no... Uh, embellishments or everything's right to the point. Mm-hmm. But the points that they're making are phenomenal. Yeah, that's what sort of when I you know when I was researching my book, I kind of, I realized that the stories, the facts are so explosive in themselves that you don't need to make a lot of claims. You don't need to exaggerate or read a lot into these issues because these. The facts are what really tell us how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. And when you know you can rely on the information, it's it's it just I think it allows people to sort of sit back and breathe, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air that you're gonna get information here that is the real deal. 
absolutely the real deal. Right, and that's where I love, and uh, maybe you can sympathize on this, like you say, the information you can rely on. Because a lot of times, you know, we're just trying to relay stories, but also uh, relay the truth around things. And people get frustrated at us for debunking things. And they say, oh, you guys are always debunking things. But it's like, it's because we're looking for this reliable, hard data that you can hold on to and demonstrate uh, that there is something real here. Exactly, and I admire you guys for doing that. Absolutely, that's what we all need to do. It's not debunking if you find out that a particular video after you find out after a week is not what is not a UFO. It can be explained. It's not debunking. It's just presenting the facts, mm-hmm. and that's what we always need to do. And I'm glad you do that. Another uh, thing that you touched on, and which I'm excited to hear from with Wilfred De Brower, is. Uh, how he came to the Americans to ask for help. Um, I recently did a story, it's going to be in our next magazine, on the Cosford incident, uh, which Mm. was, according to Nick Pope, essentially second to Rendlesham as the second most important uh, UFO event out there. But he had a funny statement where he said he also, because this was a triangular craft, went to the Americans and said, hey, do you guys have a triangular craft that might have been flowing out here some secret project and they're like no we were going to ask you if you have a triangular craft because we've had sightings of this triangular craft hovering and then taking off at incredible speeds which of course right. is the, the core story and what happened in Belgium so these behind the scenes official interactions are always very revealing absolutely I, I, I Nick uh I don't know if it was in Nick's chapter in my book. I think it was in one of the chapters I wrote where I talked about the uh, the Cosford interchange that you just mentioned, and I, I find it absolutely fascinating that the Americans said. I, I wish it was documented. I wish it was on paper. But that they said to the Brits, we were going to ask you the same question. <laughs> right. Basically, that's showing that post-Project Blue Book, in which, at a, you know, when they closed Blue Book, they told the public they weren't going to be investigating these things anymore. Well, obviously, they are at least still interested, or they wouldn't be planning to ask the Brits. And it also shows that it's sort of documentation that there have been sightings here that our government has paid attention to, and that's mm-hmm. important. It's very right. important. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you did that story. I think the Cossard case is a fascinating and really important case that hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, really, so far. Right. Right, probably because there aren't photographs or anything that go along with it, but uh, there are lots of records, especially the the MOD has released those, and uh, it's an impressive case. One more thing to say about uh, General de Brouwer's talk, which I think are go- is going to interest people, is that many people know that the famous photograph from Belgium that, that was that called the Petit right. Rachin photograph has turned out to be a hoax, which was an absolute shocker for him and me and anyone else who's involved to find out. And he is going to give the absolute uh, story of how that happened of, of, and what, what do we actually know? What have the Belgians learned about the whole process of that photograph being hoaxed, about the person who's come out and said it? Is it, in fact, a hoax? Is there any doubt about it? And that, that's all going to be discussed by General de Brouwer as well. And I think that's very – that's new. That's something that is uh, not just the case but that's sort of more current and it's important to the – to the UFO you know, world to know what mm-hmm. what's up with that photograph. Right. I'm going to learn that. 
I'm really gl- glad you brought that up because, like you say, that's something new and important, and that's a part that I'm really looking forward to. But it, it, he will also be able to frame it in the right perspective, which you've done when you've spoken to this, which is worst-case scenario in this one photograph is a hoax. It's only one small piece to a very big uh, case. Absolutely, and he makes that point very, very well, as you said. It's one incident out of thousands. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't it doesn't discount the case at all. It just discounts the person who hoaxed it basically and that's that's a small piece of the whole of the whole case. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I'd like to just well for people who are listening, if they want to go on the website while we're talking, it's um the Center for UFO Research North Carolina. It's sort of a long website name to remember c-u-f-o-r-n-c dot com and maybe people want to go on and check it out while we're talking about it so I thought I'd mention that well and I'm double checking here now but I think uh, because a lot of people don't even use URLs anymore they just um, they just go into Google they just go to Google and people can do that you can do Center for UFO Research and you'll find the symposium there beautiful thanks yep Thanks. But uh, another person I want to bring up, I, I want to save the best for last to get into <laughs> France and Chile because they're current. But uh, the best scenario, I guess, that we have the closest scenario to an official investigation group and maybe kind of an unsung heroes of current UFO research. I and mean, that's probably because they're kind of more behind the scenes. It's not like they have a, a big uh, public relations kind of effort. Mm-hmm. is um, Dr. Richard Haynes and uh, the research that he's doing into pilot cases. Absolutely, and we're very honored that he's coming because, like you said, uh, the group he represents, which is NARCAP, the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena, they do not like to mingle with the UFO world. Mm-hmm. They're very much trying to establish themselves as a scientific group and the problem with mingling with the UFO world, it's not that they don't respect it. It's just that it it's, makes it harder for them to get access to the aviation community and the, the official world that, they're, that they need to penetrate in order to make their point. It's just sort of like me. I also have to dissociate myself to some extent. And I know that some people may feel that there's some kind of disrespect there. Well, there isn't. It's just sort of a strategic necessity, you know, if you're trying to reach certain areas to be very discreet about your associations with the sort of more run-of-the-mill ufology world. So Richard Haynes is extremely sensitive about that and won't even use the word UFO anywhere. He uses the word UAP. So we're very honored that he is coming to this conference because he will not be, he doesn't accept interviews and he doesn't go to conferences in general. Uh, So I think because of the other people, the the quality of the people that are coming uh, and the tone of the conference, which is very scientific and official, he was willing to come. And he has a fascinating talk about cases that affect aviation safety. And the focus of NARCAP, of course, is to document cases that affect aviation safety and to make the point that that is an issue and that needs to be taken seriously. And his the title of his talk is UAP and Flight Safety, There is a Relationship. Mm-hmm. UAP being Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon or Phenomena, plural or singular, that's the only acronym he uses. So 
it's fascinating to hear about the cases that are actually potentially hazardous. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the famous one from Australia, the Valentic case, in which the young pilot was, you know, his, he lost. He was lost. He was killed as a result of an encounter with a UFO. And we have the uh, audio tape of that. His last interaction with the ground. So they, he's going to discuss some um, various cases and make his point. And he's an extremely distinguished uh, former senior scientist from NASA with a, with an incredible resume. He's written all kinds of official papers and done just ex- extremely impressive work. And we're very fortunate to have him be somebody that's taken an interest in this topic. It's, it's just a real, real asset. And I agree with you. I think NARCAP is really the the outstanding group in America for this kind of work. Uh, there are some great groups in America that are reporting centers for people, like the National UFO Reporting Center, for just for, for case documentation. But his group has a very specific focus, and it's got a lot of scientists that are associated with it around the world. So that's um, what sort of makes it unique, and its focus being on aviation safety is also important. Right. Um, I was wondering if you could share just a little more detail around the Australian case that you mentioned, too, just to kind of in a nutshell for people. Yes, I can remember. He um, In my book, Dr. Haynes wrote about it in his chapter. I believe it was in the 70s, and it was a young pilot who around 9 p.m. at night had taken a small plane, and he was flying over the water. Uh, I think he was only 19 or 20, and there was a whole interchange between him and ground control that there was this green, very high-speed object that was sort of fooling around with his plane, circling him, hovering above him, and he reports to ground control that it's it's not a plane. He keeps saying, do you have traffic? Do you have traffic? And then they ask him to describe it, and it's doing all these maneuvers and behaviors that obviously planes can't do. He gets increasingly agitated. You can hear it in his voice. The thing comes and goes. It goes away, then it comes back. And then I think at one point it's right above his plane. It's green, this green oval kind of brilliant light as far as I remember. And then at the end, I don't remember what happens exactly, but he, you hear this gr- sort of grating of, it sounds like a grating of metal, this very weird metallic sounds. And then it goes dead. And his plane was never located and his body was never located. He was above the water, but there were lots of divers that went in and tried to find him. And to this day, they haven't found anything. Mm-hmm. But we know that he died as a result of something that was going on up there. And there were some ground witnesses. Dr. Haynes actually went to Australia where this happened and did some research, and he actually talked to witnesses on the ground who did see some kind of a green UFO up in the sky. Mm-hmm. sort of confirms what Valentic had communicated to ground control. So it's very chilling. The full transcript of that of that uh, audio tape is in my book. The audio tape actually has not been made public. The family has not wanted wow. their son's last words to be all over the Internet. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Haynes has heard it, though. And he has a. Tr- that's where the cr- transcription came from, and it's it's in the book. Even reading it is chilling, but I imagine hearing it is even more so. 
Dr. Haynes has been working with the family in Australia, and it may be that they will at some point release the tape to NARCAP, but I don't know if that's going to happen. But I think at some point it will happen down the road. Mm-hmm. But even reading it is quite stunning. And uh, that's that's probably that. I mean, there aren't many cases like that. Most of the cases he's going to talk about deal with things like planes being pulled off their course, if there's a an, an, a phenomenon nearby, they'll sometimes veer in a certain direction because there's some kind of a force that pulls the aircraft, or they lose all their cockpit equipment, goes dead, which is similar to what happened with the Jafari case over Iran where he lost his ability to fire missiles when he got too close to the object. There's physical effects on the aircraft. That's what's important. Sometimes pilots also have to maneuver very quickly to avoid head-on collisions with these objects. And that's dangerous because they have to dive suddenly. Uh, And he documents cases where that's occurred as well and where actually there's a couple of them where people have actually been injured by by sudden sudden dives that the uh, plane has had to make to avoid a collision. So that's the kind of stuff he's interested in. And what I love about it is that it really documents the physicality of these objects, that they Mm -hmm. really exist, because you're dealing with pilots and crews interacting with them in a a situation in which there are actual physical effects that are documented. And when there are physical effects, you know something's there. It's not just somebody seeing something. It's people actually feeling changes that occur as a result of proximity to these things. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important way of documenting the validity and the reality of the phenomenon. And that's what's so fascinating about it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I do. I was going to transition into Chile, but I guess before I do that, um, because well, and I guess it kind of applies. And and with NARCAP, their methodology is similar, probably most similar to. Uh, if we had an official investigation group, uh, how that should be uh, conducted. Um, however, they're discreet for the reasons that you mentioned. And I guess that brings into play the uh, the taboo nature of the UFO topic and the way that it's uh, perceived by the public. And you do have a couple people uh, – uh, Retired Professor Ron Westrom of sociology to talk about that. And you also have another gentleman, uh, Alexander Went. So you'll be addressing this issue as well. The issue of the taboo, very, very important one because it underlines so much of the problem that we have in getting the problem of UFOs solved and also in getting a government agency in the United States to deal with it. So. I think um Dr. Wentz talk, he's a he's a current professor at Ohio State University and he's written a book in the Cambridge University Press book on international politics. He's a very, very excellent political scientist and he did write with another gentleman, he wrote a chapter in my book, which some people may have read, called Militant Agnosticism and the UFO Taboo. And this is the first time he's gone, as well for him, this is a first. It's the first time he's come to a conference like this to talk about his theory about this and his analysis of this whole issue uh, of why we have the taboo, how it operates, what the deeper roots of it are, why there's so much fear among governments to deal with the potential of there being an extraterrestrial visitor coming here. It's really, really fascinating. His chapter is 
one of my very favorite chapters in my book, and I'm so thrilled that he's going to be there to explain this and to interact with our audience about it. It's just, it it goes very deep. That's what I love about his talk. It goes very deep to sort of the root issues behind the taboo and underneath it, almost as if you were a, a psychoanalyst looking at sort of why there's this neurosis within governments about it. It's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Westrom, now you just interviewed him, Alejandro, and I know he's he's going to be presenting a paper about hit UFOs and hidden events and a whole theory, the theory, the theory of why certain anomalous events um, are hidden by the society. And if you look at things, the analogy being the meteorite issue back in the 18th century, where people uh, deny that it exists and then it suddenly becomes known. And so, uh, and how science responds to events that aren't supposed to be able to be real, even when there's evidence for them, that kind of thing. You may know more about his talk than I do, having interviewed him. <laughs> I've I've talked to him at length about it, and it's again fascinating. It's sort of another angle on why the scientific community, in particular, whereas Went focuses more on the governments and the official community, but Westrom is looking at why does the scientific community react. So peculiarly to something in which for which there is so much evidence, mm-hmm. and he can look at other examples over the courses of history that have that have sort of comparable to this, metaphorically comparable to this, and right. that's so it, it's it's not boring. It's absolutely so important these two speakers because they're looking at what lies behind our strange attitudes, and by understanding what lies behind them, we have an opportunity to address these issues and to hopefully pro- apply some therapy to these mm-hmm. you know these mistaken notions and um underlying fears that exist and prevent us from dealing responsibly for this issue so that's what's so important about it i think mhm well and i think all of this is the mixture then uh that comes together and uh to one well, i guess i should we should mention the other couple of speakers because they fit, of course, in that um, Jeffrey Bennett, who talks about uh, extraterrestrial life and scientific research in that arena. And we shouldn't take for granted just because she's our good buddy, uh, Nancy Talbot, of course, who you and I uh, have a close relationship with, but uh, who t- we'll talk about some of the forerunning science uh, in this field, that we, in particular, that relates to crop circles. Mm-hmm. And so, she's going to look at the relationship between the, the research that the scientific research that's been done on crop circles and the question of whether UFOs play any kind of a role or whether there's any relationship between the two phenomena, phenomena, between the two phenomena. So I think that'll be interesting as well. So I guess this all comes together in this mix of all of these issues that uh, an official organization has to deal with in order to venture into this arena. So like you mentioned with NARCAP, NARCAP is very discreet. Um, but behind the scenes, is, as Ron Westrom you know, talked to us about last week, they have uh, their own struggles within the scientific community uh, that they have to deal with. As Went discusses, then there's also uh, the difficulty of dealing with the government and, and how governments tackle all of this. So those are major issues they have to deal with, let alone with dealing with the social end of things and 
uh, interacting with ufologists. And all of this is uh, are things that Chile and France have had to deal with and they currently deal with. Absolutely. They are, and they are operating in a whole different world, Alejandro, because they are part of their own governments. And the difference there, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but I think one of the key differences is that when you work for the government, you have immediate access to every bit of information you want to have regarding a case. NARCAP may be the best thing we have next to that, but the limits with NARCAP are, number one, it only deals with cases that involve aviation safety. There's mm-hmm. lots of worthwhile cases that don't deal with aviation safety that need attention. And number two, they are still a civilian group, and it takes months for a civilian group to get, let's say, something from the Freedom of Information Act, to get tapes of the pilots talking to the ground. You don't even necessarily get them, and you might have to wait a long time. So there's the you don't have access to witnesses if the witnesses don't want to talk to you. A government official, within 24 hours, is on the scene doing all the interviews they want to do. They get all the information from the radar towers, from the, the audio tapes. It's just automatic. that they There's nothing stopping them. So it allows for a level of investigation that is very difficult to accomplish for civilians. And also, they're very meticulous and astute about how they go about methodical, and they don't read, they're not exaggerating anything, they're not uh, assuming anything in advance. It's very much an official approach. They have to be extremely careful, because they're working for the government, about being systematic and being accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. And really documenting things well as they go along, they know how to document. It's just it's just another level. And I've 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 had most experience in observing this in Chile because I've been down there quite a few times in the last year, and watched how they work. And I've I've been given access to certain cases that they've uh, done. And by the way, I'm going to present a very exciting new case from the government of Chile at the conference that's never been made public before. So that's interesting. But just to make the point that there's a whole level, another level of possibility in terms of what can be accomplished when you're dealing with a government agency. Mm-hmm. Well, and both of them, one thing they have to tackle that NARCAP uh, hasn't, um, which is probably good for them so they can do their research, is you have to have a public relations component if you're a government agency such as uh, France and Chile. How have they tackled that end of things? Well, the Chilean government has a law that does not allow this agency to keep secrets. They have it's called their open secrets law or something like that. They're, this agency makes all their information available to, to anyone who comes and asks for it. Now they're not they don't have public relations people that run around to the media and and <clears throat> excuse me. And run around to the media and and are looking for that. They don't. They're not going out and organizing press conferences or anything. But if somebody, so they they quietly go about their work. But if someone comes and asks them for information, that information will be provided. Mm-hmm. And the only restriction they have on it is they wait until they are completely finished an investigation with a case before they're willing to make the information available. Which is which is the way to do it. You don't want to present information on a case when it's only half done. So some cases take longer than others. 
uh, and then they also, when they've completed their investigation, if this is if it's an important case, it will be run by their committees, and the the agency in Chile has various committees that work with them on all the cases, and they represent officials and scientists and experts from lots of different areas. So, for instance, the case that I'm going to be presenting at the conference, uh, next week they've completed their investigation. The agency has created their own official statement on it. They're going to present that statement to their committee next week and make sure that everybody signs off on it and that it's everyone's simpatico. And then it goes up to very high levels within the Air Force and it has to be approved. Once that process is, is accomplished, then... I'm fortunate enough to be the one who's being given the case to break break the story, basically, because I've asked for it. And well, they, are, they, are you like um, their official American representative or something like that, even? I sort of am. <laughs> they consider me kind of their U.S. representative, certainly when it comes to the media. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, too. They I've spent a lot of time, and I've been very pleased to be sort of part of the group in some strange way to have been briefed by about, about by General Bermudez by about a lot of things and they they do sort of consider me as a US representative I don't exactly know what the proper term would be mm-hmm. and they also have a close relationship with NARCAP so uh um yeah so they we I do work closely with that group and I'm I've learned so much about the effective way they operate and how maybe that can be translated into something here a smaller scale, but the same kind of process. Mm-hmm. So, and a big difference between them and and the French is that, uh, which is kind of interesting because it's very different than here. Also, is that the Chilean group, the CEFA, are part of the Civil Aeronautics Group or their version of the FAA, whereas Japan. Um, is part of the CNES or their version of NASA. So it's kind of their French, the UFO group, is part of NASA. Chile, it's part of the the FAA. Whereas at least in America, the in the past, the official UFO uh, investigations have been part of the Air Force. Which right. which yeah. model do you think works best that you've seen, or is there a big difference? I don't think there's a whole lot of difference, actually. I mean, the, the, the slight difference may be that because the French group works for the space agency, the equivalent of NASA there, their focus is really on pure research, scientific research, for its own sake, because this is a phenomenon that deals with space. Mm-hmm. And it's a research-oriented operation, whereas the one in Chile, because it's part of the FAA, the mission statement has a sort of an emphasis on aviation cases and cases that affect avi- aviation safety, but particularly aviation military-related cases. So I think JPOM might be a little more open to a broader range of cases just because of its its focus. There's subtle differences, but I think in both countries, when an important case comes along, it's going to be investigated. Mm-hmm. And both both agencies have the job of discriminating uh, between cases that should be followed up on and cases that are not followed up on. And I think if we had an agency here, that would be an important thing to establish for that agency is how they were, were going to make their choices because you can't investigate. There's so many just sightings that obviously can't be investigated. But when, when one involves 
military and aviation people and multiple witnesses and there's certain levels of cases that that a government agency will want on will want to get involved in. Mm-hmm. Another difference is that JPA is smaller than um CFAA and has fewer staff and unfortunately they have a little more uh resistance within the official world there in terms of getting their work done mm-hmm. as and the the organization in Chile is so well integrated into the country and all the various levels of the country Everyone knows about it, everyone respects it, and everybody calls and t- gets in touch with Sefa immediately. It's just sort of par for the course in that country, and it's very, very well integrated. And I think in, in France they have a little more obstacles that make it harder for them to get the job done, as far as I understand it. They've done incredible work. They've been around since the 70s, which is much longer than the group in Chile has. And they've uh, got an amazing database of very well-researched cases that they've made public. They released all their files mm-hmm. a number of years ago. So both groups are, are really worthy of uh, models. They're worthy models for us, for what's, the rest of the world. Yeah, what's funny is, were it not for the taboo, probably all are appropriate. I mean, an FAA should have a group that is looking out, uh, like NARCAP, that is looking out for safety issues. Uh, NASA should have a group that is looking at this from the the edge of science and scientific findings. And the Air Force should have a group or the military looking at it from the idea of national security and safety Absolutely. on their end. So all yeah, of I mean, them ideally, are really appropriate. Yeah, you're right. And we, ideally there would be an agency that could would have a representative from each of those areas that you just mentioned. There'd be an FAA representative, and a NASA person, an Air Force person. And that's how they do it in Chile. Their committees have a have a representative from all the various groups that that should be involved as you just pointed out that's exactly the way it happens and it should happen in your perspective uh do you think there is any of these areas that may be more open to uh any of this uh or do you think in in the US or do you think we have a a long way to go so for instance do you think NASA may be more open to it? I guess they do have public relations. Um, um, they're they're heavy into public relations, so it may help them in this area since it's a t- popular topic. Or do you think the FAA, they actually do refer people to Bigelow and to the National UFO Reporting Center, so maybe they would be open to having their own department. Do you think there's room or hope in any of these areas for a U.S. organization? Well, I'm certainly working towards that goal. I think that so far it's very difficult. There's not a lot of openness or interest on the part of these organizations to the ones you mentioned anyway, NASA and FAA, uh, to have a a dedicated office just dealing with this. No, I don't think they would do that, and I don't think that there's enough cases within that would fit within the purview of those particular agencies. That's why I think we Mm -hmm. need a central office in which they would have representatives that would would participate, but not a dedicated office. I think the dedicated office ideally would be within the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House or somewhere that's sort of more all-encompassing so that um, they wouldn't be restricted by the mission of NASA or restricted by the mission of the FAA, but would have a broader, broader possible approach. And a lot of the work they would be doing would be in conjunction with agencies from other countries 
And I don't think the FAA would be particularly focused on interacting with an agency in another country. It would have to be something bigger. So, um, because so much of what's important is that the American agency have relationships with the other countries and that it try to bring resources into the research of this phenomenon that can elevate it, take it to another level so that maybe we can learn new information, maybe we can break through something that will allow us to be more sure about what it is and what it isn't. We need some kind of definitive work done on it. And I think until the United States officially acknowledges that there's something here worthy of investigation, which is all it would have to do to set up even just one staff person on this, once that happens, a lot can change and where the stigma is lifted and therefore the scientific community is freer to get involved and therefore resources become uh, diverted to this and eventually it could grow into something in which scientists become curious enough about it and free enough to work on it that they become more proactive in really trying to figure out what it is. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what's so important, and that's why I think it's so important that we have an official agency in America. Because if we, as long as we don't have that, the scientific community is just stuck where it is now. And until the United States changes its position on it, even slightly, the door is going to remain closed, mm-hmm. and it's really up to the United States to make that shift. And the the other agencies in the world realize that without the United States coming on board, yes, they can still continue to document cases, which is all interesting and everything, but it's not going to leave, lead to a major breakthrough until something more can be added to the pot. And what that what we need in that pot is the United States. It's just a clear, clear issue that we need the United States, and it can be a very minimal involvement to make a huge difference. Right. So that's what I'm, that's to me is what is most important, I think, in terms of the future direction that we need to go with the UFO issue is to get our government to do that. And that's why I think focusing on the official agencies and the official work that's being done is what's most important because it sends a message to America that there is something happening here that's being done at the governmental level and that's that's what needs the message that needs to be sent and we have to be careful about making claims of extraterrestrial visits and conspiracies and beings talking to humans and all that kind of stuff whether it's true or not it's not going to be what's going to get the attention or the involvement of the US government that's for sure well, I think you frame it exactly correct, and that's what we have to think of is the term that you use, worthy of study, and that's the whole point. I mean, so far they have said it doesn't pose a national security threat. Uh, Condon determined it doesn't hold scientific uh, – there aren't scientific findings that may be available, but mostly we hear you know, it's not a national security threat, which still leaves open the whole idea of whether it's worthy of study. So that is the area that we need to focus on. And like you said, um, jumping to assumptions is not going to um, help for that effort. But uh, presenting some of these very strong, credible uh, investigations like you have represented here in the conference are going to be things that will make it more compelling that uh, it is a subject at least worthy of study. 
Exactly, and that's all that our government has to realize to take a step. It doesn't. It's not saying, oh, we think there's extraterrestrial spacecraft out there. All it has to say is, we don't know what's going on, but there's something here that's kind of interesting. And look, these other governments are investigating it. Maybe we should do the same, and maybe we can even learn something that they haven't learned yet. That's mm-hmm. all. You know, that's all it is. It's not. And maybe if they don't think there's anything to it, maybe they need to set up an agency to prove that once and for all, so we can stop wasting our time. Right, and I think I mean, that, really, mm-hmm. really, it's it's not about making any assumptions as to what the phenomenon is. And I think the more that the people in the UFO community do that, and it it doesn't serve the purpose that I'm focused on. Now they may have a different purpose, which is which is fine. They can have their own purpose, but in terms of accessing the government, it does not serve the cause. To, to make the claim that we already know what they are, because as far as our government is concerned, we absolutely do not know. In fact, we barely even know that there's a phenomenon out there because our, our government is not educated about it. So right. uh, anyway, so but but the point being that we're only asking for something very minimal, as you just articulated, Alejandro. And uh, that's why I think it's it's within possibility that it could happen, because we if you don't ask for too much then we might achieve our goal. Mm-hmm. And once that door is open, even way more than I think any government agency would even realize or ever, any staffer would realize or any officials realize who might choose to do this, it's opening a door and all you need is a crack in that door and then it's going to open further and further and further. And we're just trying to get that initial crack opened. And it has to be a crack in the beginning, but... That crack means everything. It can change everything, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and the the, the government, of course, is very political motivated. Uh, but it, I think the media has learned, because of what you see uh, in the press so much, that the public is very interested in this topic. Um, so hopefully that can help um, motivate some movement. Absolutely. The the people in the democracy are interested and many of them want answers and that's another reason why there should be some level of responsibility uh within our government to try and solve this mystery. Uh in, in Chile they did a recent poll and they discovered that eighty five percent of the public accept this as real. Wow. It's, it's just part of the culture. I know that's not the case here, but I know there's a lot, probably 50% anyway, that certainly... But it's not a compelling issue, and we have to be realistic. Most people are not concerned with it as much as they are with just economic issues. And, you know, we've got environmental problems and global warming and all these things that are are really top of the list for for officials to deal with, and rightly so, and also for the public to be concerned about. But the point being, to have one staff person or two staff people in a small office somewhere is not going to cost much. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know these these staffers are put on jobs all the time within the government. It it's not going to cost a lot of money to make that happen because the staffers can rely on existing already existing uh technological if they if they need to get you know analyze radar, analyze photographs, whatever they need to do, the 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 offices the, the abilities the the what am I trying to say? The laboratory, mm-hmm. whatever facilities that they need are already there for them. So it's it's not going to cost a lot. Really, it's just a matter of 
having the staff on hand to be able to do the job. And so that's why I think even though we have all these very compelling, very serious issues on our plate, this is not something that's going to drain money away from other other issues. It's, mm-hmm. it's not expensive. It's not a hard thing to do. It's much more about the the taboo and just convincing the official world that this is worthy, that this is important enough to do, mm-hmm. to do it. That involves educating them because most of the people involved with policymaking don't know much about this. So there's a lot of education that has to go on, and that's where you have to be careful to present them with the right kinds of information. And that kinds of in- kind of information is the information that's going to be presented at this conference. So that's the, the kind of information that needs to go to the official world. And that's one reason why I'm happy about the conference, because uh, we can make this, these speakers available. We can make this information available to higher levels. So that's all another bonus of the conference. But if people want to come and see what the real deal is that's going to move our country forward, this is the place, this is the conference to do that. Right. I mean, what a better way to uh, uh, kind of encapsulate, you know, um, the best, the most compelling um, information as far as why the U.S. needs to get involved with this. Absolutely, and I think especially, as we said earlier, that the official coming from Chile and the official coming from France are really going to be able to make some really interesting points about And they're not going to speak directly to the United States government, but we're going to have them on the record explaining how it works in their countries, and we're going to be able to see how it all works. So that's so important. And, and it's as I said, it's never happened before that they've come here and talked about what they're doing. So, right, um, it's really kind of an historic, historic event, I think. And it, it's Javier Paso. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Javier Paso. He's the uh, official from France, and Jose Lai is the official from Chile. Right. Great. And then I guess uh, the last person who we didn't mention, but he'll be doing. He's a UFO researcher for a long time, who will probably be giving some best case kind of information. Is Timothy Good? Timothy Good, and he's going to do. Some, he's going to give, I think, very interesting information about government documents, mm. which are so important to just to let people know that so much of this of the reality of UFO of the UFO phenomenon comes from government documents. Right. And he's been somebody who's been so focused on collecting documents and and getting a handle on what governments around the world actually know about this. So um, we were, you know, we've asked him to kind of bring forward some of the key documents from around the world and look at, well, look what these governments have released. What do they know? What do we all know? And when it's officially documented, it's legit. It's not a question of did it happen or not, or it's just, you know, it's 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 get it it elevates it to a certain level of validity that. Our government will listen to if it's from another government. You see, I mean, it's all about getting it up on that level so that it makes sense to the official world. And and Timothy's going to make a very important contribution to that process as well by by bringing forward a lot of these documents. Mm -hmm. And he's worked with some very high officials in the UK who have been interested in this, like Lord Hill Norton, for instance, who I know. Absolutely. Yep. He's been very involved with Lord Hill Norton, and, and he has contacts in America as well, in, in Washington, who he meets with. And so uh, I think uh, that's another important aspect of all this, uh, is going to be his talk as well, 
and it'll give people again as you said sort of a broad picture of of some important cases some important documents a sort of an historical overview of what we know and what's happened over the years what are the key moments within history that jump out at us and he's a great speaker he's very right. articulate a brilliant guy, and um, that's going to be a great a great lecture. Also, I think the the whole gestalt of this conference is is just terrific. And I think having Jeffrey Bennett also, who's a, a, a scientist who does not even mm-hmm. accept he does not accept that there's evidence of extraterrestrial visits from UFOs. He doesn't take it particularly seriously. His book is called Beyond UFOs, and that's what his lecture is going to be called too. The scientific search for extraterrestrial life and its astonishing implications for our future, and he's going to be talking about all the different ways that scientists are trying to uh, learn about the potential life in the universe. And a lot of it is about the Kepler satellite satellites' discovery of these Earth-like planets out there, which is constantly things are constantly being learned by Kepler. More and more and more planets are being discovered that seem like they could support life. And so I find that information extremely interesting. And so we're going to hear from him all about the sort of scientific search for life in the universe. And then we'll have a very interesting Q&A with him because uh, I'm sure that our audience will be interested in dialoguing with him since he does not include the UFO you know, question as part of his overview mm-hmm. of evidence or of a search for life, extraterrestrial life. So... I'm I'm so fascinated not only to hear the information he's going to present, but also to see how he interacts and how the audience interacts with him during the Q and A. It's mm-hmm. going to be a really important, and people, local people can. Um, we've got it set up so people can just come to his lecture if they want. It's sort of our special Saturday night science lecture, basically. It sort of stands apart from the rest of the conference, but it's part of the conference. But it's anyway, people can see that on the website and when they look at the tickets. You can buy various packages of different tickets. The tickets are not too expensive. I mean, I think they're very reasonably priced for what the conference has to offer. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope people will go to the website. And again, it's the Center for UFO Research. If you just Google that or go to my Facebook page, there's a link there. Um, and there's a link at the Open Mind site, too, right? Right, yep. Under our events or on the front page, we have a graphic that's uh, in the rotation. And uh, that's June 29th and 30th. And so coming up pretty soon here, Greensboro, North Carolina, going to be pretty fun. Pretty fun. And I'm, I'm hoping you'll be there, Alejandro. I think it's likely you will be. Me, too. Uh, Most likely I will. It's, uh, um very excited about it, that's for sure. And if anyone has any questions, they can. you can go on the website. There's a, a, a way you can send an email with questions. Or if anybody wants to send me a message on my Facebook page, I'd be happy to answer any questions about the conference or forward them on to the appropriate person. So uh, feel free to contact me on Facebook about it. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been, as usual, a ton of fun and very uh, informational. So thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks, Alejandro. It's great talking with you, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much to Leslie Kane for joining us uh, again. Super interesting talk. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I really love. Um, I think the kind of thing that she's doing is really what's going to help us move forward in this field, which is the whole goal to get somewhere. 
So you can go to centerforuforesearch.com or even just Google Center for UFO Research and you'll find the site and uh, go check it out. Go look at the speakers and uh, get your travel arranged so you can get out there. Also, I want to talk about our YouTube, the Open Mind YouTube, because we have put up a lot of really cool videos last week, including Paul Hellyer, the uh, ex-Minister of Defense for Canada, who is an advocate for uh, disclosing UFO secrets, and he also uh, talks a lot about like the global financial situation and the problem with uh, the consolidation of, of these secret powers and stuff like this, so... Very cool video. It's a whole uh, lecture from his International UFO Congress talk just a couple years ago, and it's free to watch, so go check that out. We also put up some pictures from the Lubbock Lights, because as many of you know, we have the Wendell Stevens UFO Photo Archive, so we're always, always releasing some information on that. And so we put up pictures from the Lubbock Lights in Texas, and to find out more about that, a very popular UFO sighting, go check that out. And then we also have an interview with uh, Jim Allen, who did a documentary on Mark McCandlish and the Alien Reproduction video. So go check our, our YouTube, go look at our magazine that is on your newsstands, or give us a call and order it. Uh, otherwise, I will talk to you next week. And of course, as, like always, I want to thank the people who have donated the music, Caleb Hanks for the opening music, and Two Earth Minutes for the close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next week, people.